When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Trump in focus as President Biden takes the fight directly to Donald Trump. He doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. Trump looks to cement his hold on the GOP. No, I'm not a threat. I will save democracy. What would a second Trump term look like? Top Trump ally Republican Senator J.D. Vance of Ohio is ahead. Plus, on the line, a split over foreign aid divides Congress as world pressure grows over the civilian death toll in Gaza. There's more that has to happen. Does the Biden administration have any conditions in its support for Israel in the war? Secretary of State Antony Blinken is next. And survival. World leaders meet to confront the climate crisis and consider phasing out fossil fuels. But will they go far enough? If there is an agreement to phase out fossil fuels, it will be a success. If there's not, it will be a failure. Former Vice President Al Gore joins me exclusively. Hello, I'm Jake Tapper in Washington, where the State of Our Union is preparing for what looks to be a quite ugly 2024. We're closing in on a presidential election year in America already feels irreparably divided. Late last night, we saw former President Donald Trump leaning into his new argument that despite his and his allies' efforts to overturn the 2020 election, it is he who will save democracy, days after he told Hannity that if re-elected, he would be a dictator on day one, though just on day one, a line many of his fellow Republican officials laughed off. Democrats, of course, face their own divisions. The president of the University of Pennsylvania resigned yesterday after ham-handed comments at a hearing on anti-Semitism in which she said, uh, any calls to commit genocide against Jews on campus would only violate campus harassment policy, depending on the context. And with Congress stalled over foreign aid to Ukraine and Israel, the pressure on the Biden administration over its Israel policy is only growing this weekend after the U.S. vetoed a U.N. Security Council ceasefire resolution that was backed by allies. And the State Department said it would bypass Congress to send Israel more ammunition for tanks as Israel pursues its offensive against Hamas in Gaza an offensive which has killed thousands of innocent Palestinians. Hamas hides among the civilian population, of course, but the U.S. continues to say it wants Israel to do more to stop the bloodshed of innocence. Aid officials are now warning that the scale of the humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza is only growing, and the president's support for Israel is continuing to divide the Democratic Party. Joining me now is Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Mr. Secretary, thanks for joining us. So, the U.S. stood alone at the U.N. Security Council on Friday to block the ceasefire, and the administration is sidestepping Congress to rush more weapons to Israel. You said this week there is, quote, a gap between the intent to protect Palestinian civilians and the actual results that we're seeing on the ground in Gaza. Can you describe that gap? What is Israel doing right now that you think does not demonstrate enough care or protection of Palestinian civilians? Jake, we think there needs to be a premium put on protecting civilians and making sure that humanitarian assistance can get to everyone who needs it. And as I said, I think the intent is there, but uh, the results are not always manifesting themselves. And we see that 
both in terms of civilian protection and humanitarian assistance. We want to make sure that as Israel continues this, this campaign, because remember, they are dealing with a terrorist organization that engaged in the most vicious possible brutality on October 7th and has made clear that it would, uh, would do it again and again and again if given the opportunity. So Israel needs to be able to deal with this, to protect itself, to prevent October 7th from happening again. But as it does that, it's imperative that civilians be protected. And here, the critical thing is to make sure that the military operations are designed around civilian protection and to focus on that. When it comes to humanitarian assistance, um, that we, as you know, um, made the argument uh, many weeks ago to get humanitarian assistance in. It started to flow. We got it doubled during the humanitarian pause for the hostage releases that we helped to negotiate. But now what's critical is this. Um, even as Israel has taken additional steps, for example, to designate safe areas in, in the south, uh, to focus on neighborhoods, not entire cities in terms of evacuating them, what we're not seeing sufficiently is a couple of things. One, making sure that the humanitarian op operators who are there, starting with the United Nations, performing heroically, that there are deconfliction times, places, and routes so that the humanitarians can bring the assistance that's getting into Gaza to the people who need it. Similarly, we need to see the same kind of deconfliction, uh, time, uh, pauses, uh, designated routes, plural, not, not, not just one, uh, and, uh, and clarity of communication so that people know when it is safe and where it is safe to move to get out of harm's way before they go back home. These are the kinds of things we're working on every single day, again, to make sure that that gap between intent and result is as narrow as possible. The IDF told uh, CNN, I believe Alex Marquardt earlier today, that they estimate they've killed about 7,000 Hamas uh, fighters. When do you anticipate this phase of Israel's military campaign is going to end? Obviously, they can't kill every member of Hamas, and even if they did, 150,000 new ones would show up the next day. Are the Israelis telling you anything about when this phase is going to wrap up? Because obviously the civilian death toll is mounting. It's unimaginable. Secretary Austin suggested uh, that Israel might ultimately be facing a strategic defeat by chasing so many Palestinians into the arms of Hamas. Jake, the, we have these discussions with Israel, including about uh, the duration as well as how it's prosecuting uh, this campaign against Hamas. Uh, these are decisions for Israel to make, but Hamas has decisions to make too. It could get out from hiding behind civilians tomorrow. Right. It could put down its arms tomorrow. It could surrender tomorrow, and this would be over. Right, obviously, but will the U.S. continue to back Israel the way it's backing Israel right now if this continues for months and months as opposed to days or weeks? Again, Israel has to make these decisions. Of course, everyone wants to see this uh, campaign come to a close as quickly as possible. Uh, but any country faced with what Israel is facing, a terrorist organization that attacked it in the most horrific way possible on October 7th, and as I said, has said repeatedly that it would do it again and again and again, it has to get to the point where uh, it is confident that that can't be repeated. But you make another point that's very important. When the major military operation is over, uh, this is not over because we have to have a durable, sustainable peace. Uh, and we have to make sure that we're on the path to a durable, sustainable peace. From our perspective, I think from the perspective of, of, of many around the world, uh, that has to lead to a Palestinian state. This is, we're not going to have durable peace. We're not going to have durable security for Israel uh, unless and until Palestinian political aspirations are met. Uh, and of course, what happens 
the day after in Gaza itself, once military operations, major military operations are over, that's also usually important uh, and urgent to make sure that governance, security, reconstruction, all of that is in place so that there's no vacuum. The Committee to Protect Journalists says at least 63 journalists uh, and members of the news media have been killed, 56 of them Palestinian, uh, in this war, uh, presumably mostly if not entirely by IDF strikes. Is that acceptable to you? You've made a press freedom a hallmark of your, of your term. How do you explain all these deaths of journalists? How do the Israelis explain it? Jake, as I see journalists, including some of your colleagues, but also from many other news organizations, putting their lives on the line to just bring the news, bring the facts, bring information uh, to the world. I have extraordinary admiration for what they do, for the courage that they show, and for the vital importance of their mission. And we want to make sure that just as every civilian is protected to the greatest extent possible, of course, journalists are too. Uh, and when it comes to uh, instances where journalists have been killed. Uh, we want to make sure that that's investigated uh, and we understand what's happened and there's accountability. Congress is scrambling to reach a, a deal to pass foreign aid for Ukraine and Israel. Republicans are insisting uh, on more border funding and new asylum restrictions that that be added to the, to the bill. What would it mean for Ukraine and Israel if Congress does not pass any additional support by the end of the year? And why not agree to tougher border protections, which is an issue of national security as well. Well, Jake, the, the border piece, as you know, is out, of my, uh, is out of my purview. But I can say this. I know on, on day one uh, of this administration, or at least day, day two, the president put before Congress, I think, the first bill uh, on uh, immigration reform. Unfortunately, Congress hasn't acted on that. In this request for additional funds, uh, there, is, there are $6 billion dollars. Uh, to enhance border security, including having more people, more agents uh, on the border. So I know that's very much part of the, uh, the discussion and something the president's fully prepared to, to engage on. But in terms of what it would mean for Ukraine, what it would mean for Israel, uh, what it would mean for our, our efforts uh, to be competitive in the Indo-Pacific, uh, I think the only people who'd be happy if uh, the supplemental budget request is not voted on and approved by Congress are sitting in Moscow, uh, sitting in uh, Tehran, sitting in Beijing. Uh, for Ukraine, this is absolutely vital. They've made remarkable progress uh, over uh, the last year in pushing back Russian aggression, taking back more than 50% of the territory that was seized since uh, February of 2022. But they're in a ferocious battle now in the south and the east. We are running out of uh, funding for them. By the way, 90% of the assistance, the security assistance that we provided Ukraine is actually invested right here in the United States uh, to our companies, to our manufacturers. Similarly, uh, we've had extraordinary burden sharing with our allies and partners. We've provided very significant assistance, about $70 billion over the last two years. Uh, our European friends uh, and partners beyond Europe, more than $110 billion for Ukraine. So we have the burden sharing that we need. Uh, this is a time to really step up because uh, if we don't, we know what happens. Putin will be able to move forward with impunity um, and we, we know he won't stop in Ukraine. Uh, and he may well end up going after a NATO country. That would bring us in, given our obligations to our NATO allies. So here, an ounce of prevention is really worth 10 pounds of cure. Uh, Anthony, as you know, uh, CNN has, has led the coverage when it comes to the evidence uh, uh, mounting in Israel of uh, rapes and, and sex crimes committed by Hamas against mm -hmm. women and girls, maybe even against men, uh, on October 7th. 
Why do you think the United Nations and the international community has been so slow to condemn these atrocities? I, I can't think of a, a real reason. Um, well, let me just put it this way. I've heard anti-Semitism hypothesized as a reason why the UN and the international community might be uh, so slow to acknowledge this. What do you think? Uh, Jake, first, I, I really applaud the extraordinary work of CNN on, in, in bringing this to light and bringing this before the world. Uh, you performed a remarkable service in doing that. As to your question, I don't have an answer. I don't know why uh, countries, leaders, international organizations were so slow to uh, focus on this, to bring it to people's attention. I'm glad it's finally happened. The atrocities that we saw on October 7th are almost beyond human description or beyond our capacity to digest. And we've talked about them before, but the uh, sexual violence that uh, we saw on October 7th uh, is beyond anything that, uh, that I've seen either. Uh, so thank you for doing that. And look, I don't have a good answer to that question. I think it's a question that these organizations, these countries need to ask themselves. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, thanks for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jake. Good to be with you. Have Republicans who oppose more aid to Ukraine already won the fight in Congress? Senator J.D. Vance of Ohio joins me next on that. And a report he's on Donald Trump's vice presidential shortlist. Plus, could world leaders actually agree this week to phase out fossil fuels? Former Vice President Al Gore will join me ahead. Stay with us. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Jake Tapper. We're five weeks out from the Iowa caucuses, but much of the political dialogue this week centered on what a second Trump term might look like, uh, particularly after comments by the former president and former aides. Last night, Trump called concerns about what he might do in office, quote, the threat to democracy hoax. For more on that and the debate that is dividing the Senate, key Trump ally and Republican Senator J.D. Vance of Ohio joins me now live in studio. Thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate it. So you just heard Secretary Blinken try to make the case for aid to both Israel and Ukraine. You and Senate Republicans uh, recently blocked a package to support Ukraine and Israel. Um, among the reasons, uh, more uh, uh, support for a border package to protect the southern border. Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell, however, talking about the, the aid for Israel and Ukraine, said that threats from Russia, China, Iran, Hamas, are all interconnected. I want you to take a listen to what he had to say. Sure. The challenges facing America and our allies today are not on a la carte menu of projects we can address at our leisure. America doesn't have the luxury of facing these threats 
individually. Our ability to contend with complex, simultaneous threats is exactly what our adversaries are testing. Now you, you disagree with that, and you, and you oppose aid to Ukraine. Ex- explain your position. Well, so first of all, Jake, I think it's possible to have separate debates. In fact, congressional Republicans tried to force an Israel alone aid package just a couple of weeks ago that Democrats blocked in the Senate. Uh, so we can have separate debates. I think that we need to have separate debates. But on the Ukraine question in particular, Everybody knows, everybody with a brain in their head, Jake, knows that this was always going to end in negotiation. The idea that Ukraine was going to throw Russia back to the 1991 borders was preposterous. Nobody actually believed it. So what we're saying to the president and really to the entire world is you need to articulate what the ambition is. What is $61 billion going to accomplish that $100 billion hasn't? We have to remember, Jake, Ukraine is functionally destroyed as a country. The average age of a soldier in the Ukrainian army right now is 43. That's tragic. That's older than me. I'm 39. If this thing goes on a little bit longer, the average age of a Ukrainian soldier is going to be older than you. And then a year later, it could be a Wolf Blitzer. That is a tragedy. What does it look like? I don't like this age graph. I'm, so, I'm sorry, Jake. But, but, I'm 54 but, but, for those wondering. I, 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 yeah. We are getting to a place yeah. where we are going to be functionally on the hook to pay for Ukrainian pensioners, to rebuild the entire country. We need to bring the killing to a stop. And that's what American leadership should be doing, not writing more blank checks to the war. So what do you make of the argument, though, that if the U.S. and NATO and the EU cede part of Ukraine to Putin, or even all of Ukraine to Putin, um, that really all we're doing is putting out the welcome mat for him to then invade a country that is in the NATO alliance, such as Poland. So there's two reasons I don't buy this. First of all, Putin has showed he's much weaker than a lot of people feared. The Ukrainians have fought bravely. They've also stalled Putin at a very small amount of territorial gain relative to the entire country. The idea that he can march to Poland or Berlin is preposterous. And the other thing that this really misses here is we have to remember our NATO allies, with the exception of a few Eastern Europeans, are not carrying their fair share of the burden. Most of them don't even spend 2% of their GDP on defense. If Putin is a threat to Berlin, that means the Germans should be changing something about their defense policy. It doesn't mean we can write indefinite checks to Ukraine. Right. But Russia has been proven to be something of, of, of a paper tiger because the U.S. has been helping Ukraine, right? I mean, that's the reason. Well, it's also because, of course, the Ukrainians have fought very bravely. I think it's also because, look, you cannot occupy an entire territory the size of Ukraine with the amount of troops that Russia has. Uh, the idea that you can go even further and control multiple European nations is, I think, a scare tactic to get people distracted from the fact that our Ukraine policy just doesn't make a ton of sense. You know, I listened to Secretary Blinken. What are we trying to do, Jake? What is the end goal here? How long does this go until the president can articulate the answer to those questions? I don't know why we would write another blank check. Well, I guess the argument might be, and I'm certainly not Secretary Blinken, but the argument might be that Russia invaded a sovereign nation that is an ally. And what Russia, and this is a pretty, pretty stark morality tale, that what Russia is doing is evil. And Putin's goals are, as he has stated them time and time again, to rebuild the former USSR. It is a stark morality tale, Jake, but we can't make strategic decisions based on stark morality tales. We have to figure out what is in America's best interest. We have a food crisis that's getting worse because of the prolonged war in Eastern Europe. We have an energy crisis that's threatening to swamp multiple allied governments in Western Europe. What's in America's best interest is to accept 
Ukraine is going to have to cede some territory to the Russians, and we need to bring this war to a close. But when I think about the great human tragedy here, hundreds of thousands of Eastern Europeans, innocent, have been killed in this conflict. The thing that's in our interest and in theirs is to stop the killing. Let's turn to some domestic issues, especially uh, in your doorstep. Ohio's new constitutional amendment protecting abortion rights went into effect Thursday. You said after it passed, quote, we have to recognize how much voters mistrust us on this issue, us meaning Republicans. This week, the Texas Supreme Court is blocking a woman in Texas from obtaining abortion, even though her fetus has a rare genetic condition that is almost always fatal. uh, and, And her doctors want her to be able to get this so that she's able to have babies in the future and for her health. Isn't that situation an example of why many voters might not trust Republicans? Well, I don't know the details of that story, Jake, but I will say that we have to accept that people do not want blanket abortion bans. They just don't. I say this as a person who wants to protect as many unborn babies as possible. We have to provide exceptions for the life of the mother, for rape and so forth. Uh, That is just a basic necessity. When I say that people don't really trust us, Jake, what I'm getting at is, look, uh, I, am, I am luckily a person of means, but I have been shocked by you go to the hospital, you have a baby, you get a $20,000 unexpected bill. What does that look like for a middle class family that is trying to figure out how to pay the mortgage? We've made it way too hard to have children and have families in this country. In that environment, if people see Republicans not as the party that's trying to make it easier to have babies, but is just trying to take people's rights away, uh, then we're going to lose. I want to protect as many unborn babies as possible. I also think we have to win the trust back of the American people. And one of the ways to do that is to be the truly pro-family party. I think we are. We've got to carry that message forward and actually enact some public policy to that effect. Does, is birth control part of that policy, uh, empowering women to be able to make those decisions before they get pregnant? Look, obviously people need to be able to make those decisions. I don't think that I know any Republican, at least not a Republican with a brain that's trying to take those rights away from people. Uh, but I think it goes deeper than that. I mean, where, I could provide a list for you if you wanted. Well, but. okay. Not, not anybody I talk to, Jake. But, but look, I think the more important question is, I talk to a lot of people, a lot of young families who want to have babies. They can't afford mortgages. mortgages. Yeah. They're terrified about health care expenses. We've got to answer those questions for people. Uh, we've got to have a role to play because, look, we have a real problem in this country. Not enough American families that want to have children are able to do it. That's how you destroy a nation. Um, let's turn to Trump because there are a lot of conservatives who have deep concerns about President Trump, a second term, and democracy if he is reelected. Take a listen to what former Congresswoman Liz Cheney uh, told me this week. He already tried to seize power once, so uh, you know it shouldn't be hard for anybody to imagine that he will do it again. Once a president decides that he's above the law, as Donald Trump has, everything unravels nearly immediately. Do you really have no concerns that Donald Trump might try to abuse his power if reelected? No, Jake, I don't. Look, the guy was president for four years. We had peace. We had prosperity. We had wages rising faster than inflation. Joe Biden has been president for three years. Now the average Ohio family pays 10000 more to afford the same standard of living. Uh, the idea that Trump is going to be radically different than what he was four years ago is, is just preposterous. He was an effective, successful president. Uh, I think he will be an effective, successful president again. That's why I've endorsed him. And I, and I think this desire to make the election all about the past is indicative of the fact that Democrats don't have much to run on. I think Republicans do. Well, with respect, the one talking about the past more than anyone is Donald Trump. And he's out there talking about how the 2020 election was stolen from him. He's using all sorts of bogus evidence, uh, lies, uh, assertions that were disputed and overruled by court after court, judge after judge, election board after election board, judges and election boards that were Republicans and judges that were appointed by him 
I mean, he's really the one focused so, on 2020. So, look, you just showed me a clip of Liz Cheney, and I think that's person, a person who is clearly obsessed with 2020 and talks almost nothing other than uh, January 6th of 2021. I think if you look at what the president is out there campaigning on, he's campaigning on redelivering peace and prosperity uh, for the American people. Now, if you want to talk about the 2020 election, we can have that conversation. But I want to talk about, and I think President Trump wants to talk about the future. That's what this election is going to be decided on. That's what I'm focused on. Well, I think the concern is that he wouldn't stock his administration with the J.D. Vances of the world. He would stock them with individuals who would not be able to tell him no. One voice that I've heard people express concern about is a guy named Cash Patel. He was on the NSC. Uh, He served briefly as the chief of staff of the Pentagon. Here's what he had to say on Steve Bannon's podcast earlier this week. We will go out and find the conspirators, not just in government, but in the media. Yes, we're going to come after the people in the media who lied about American citizens, who helped Joe Biden rig presidential elections. We're going to come after you. So, look, I know Cash very well. Uh, let me let me think, talk about what I think he was talking about, though. I didn't see the full context of the clip, Jake. Uh, we know. You sound like a University we, of Pennsylvania president. We, we know. <laughs> We know in 2020 that there were massive pieces of evidence that were suppressed by collusion between the national security state in this country and various uh, various. You're talking about the Hunter Biden laptop. The Hunter Biden laptop story. The reason reason that, no, it was suppressed on social media. For like a day or two two on Twitter. Jake, millions of Americans, there have been studies on this, didn't see that story that would have seen it if there hadn't been that collusion between these technology companies and members of the media who had security clearances. These people were using the trust acquired over a lifetime of public service and lying to the American people in order. I agree that we need to look seriously at how there was collusion between members of the press and big technology companies and members of national security state. Jake, that's not journalism. It is not journalism to take your security clearance, lie to the American people, and then persuade the big technology companies to censor anti-Joe Biden stories. That's not journalism. That is cooperation between the government and journalism. It's the opposite. Well, Donald Trump was president at the time that any censorship was going on, so nobody in government I mean, any Biden people were not that were asking that were not uh, <clears throat> in the government at the time. But I will just say, as somebody that that tried to see the laptop, Rudy Giuliani wouldn't let us see the laptop. He wouldn't let us, so we weren't able to report on it because he wanted us just to go by his work. Jake, I'm I'm much less concerned about what you were reporting on, and much more concerned about the fact that millions of Americans get their news through social media, and we know. The FBI was working with the social media companies okay. to censor a troubling story. Think we're talking about threats to democracy. That's crazy. The FBI encouraging private companies to censor journalists. That should really piss a lot of people off, you included. So but before you go, Axios is reporting that you're on Donald Trump's shortlist, possibly for uh, 2024 to be VP. Any interest? Look, I was elected to be a senator for the people of Ohio. I think that's the way that I'm most effective. But I'm going to help Trump however I can because I think he was a good president. I think the American people will benefit from having him president again. All right. Uh, J.D. Vance, thanks so much for being here, Senator. Really appreciate it. The world's leaders are huddling right now over the climate. Does Al Gore think they're doing enough to heal our planet? He's here next. Stay with us. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Jake Tapper. As the world's climate nears a breaking point, world leaders are in the UAE, of all places, this weekend, hammering out an agreement to try to stop rising temperatures. Experts insist you cannot do that without phasing out fossil fuels, but oil-producing nations are pushing back strongly on that, not surprisingly, including the host of the climate conference. 
And joining me now is former Vice President Al Gore. Vice President Gore, thanks so much for joining us. So you were just with world leaders at the COP28 Global Climate Summit, being hosted by the UAE, one of the biggest oil-producing countries in the world. The president of the summit is the CEO of a state-run oil company who recently said that there's no science to support phasing out fossil fuels. That's obviously not true. This all feels like having an arsonist host a, a fire prevention seminar. Do you have any hope that something substantive can actually come out of this? Well, uh, Jake, uh, they've, they've overreached. <laughs> the fossil fuel industry has sought to control and manipulate uh, this process for a long time. They're way better at capturing politicians than capturing emissions. But they've gone too far, and I think that it, uh, it could possibly end up as a kind of blessing in disguise because it has awakened a lot of people to how absurd this situation is. The climate crisis is a fossil fuel crisis, and they try to pretend that they can separate fossil fuels from emissions from the fossil fuels and keep on burning them and catch the emissions on the way into the air. It's kind of ridiculous. Maybe one day in the future that might be possible, but it's nowhere uh, feasible. It's nowhere close to being feasible now. Anyway, I think there's a, a chance that we could see a surprisingly uh, good outcome here if the majority of the countries there hold to their hold uh, on to their convictions and demand a phase out of fossil fuels. I'm hoping. For people who are not familiar with this conference, can you explain why on earth a climate conference would be held in a major oil producing country to begin with? Well, it's kind of ridiculous. It should not be, uh, although it's not so much uh, that it's in a country that produces oil. It's the appointment of the CEO of one of the biggest and least responsible oil companies on the planet to be the head of the conference. And here's the reason that's a direct conflict of interest, Jake. He's charged with the, by the UN with the responsibility of guiding the world toward a sharp phase down of these uh, greenhouse gas emissions, which mainly come from burning fossil fuels. But he's charged uh, by his sovereign uh, the, and the company that he heads with a massive expansion of fossil fuels. They've got a plan uh, to expand production of both oil and gas by an enormous amount, starting the minute the gavel bangs to end this uh, conference. And that's a direct conflict of interest. And it's not a nitpicking thing to point that out. Uh, it, it, the people of our world deserve to have some confidence that this process has integrity. And we've been seeing the fossil fuel polluters try to manipulate this uh, process for a long time. And the world's running out of patience because this, this is so serious now. We're in the hottest year ever measured. We're seeing these extreme uh, climate-related weather events just causing havoc all over the world. And the scientists who've been spot on and dead right in their past predictions, we've seen it play out, we need to give them careful attention to what they're saying would happen if we don't phase out fossil fuels. So we've got to do it. And I'm hopeful that this time we will really finally see uh, some meaningful action. It, it does look like, like uh, the, the 2024 election will come down to President Biden uh, versus, versus uh, former President Trump. Um, and I'm wondering what you think uh, the world would look like under uh, uh, President Trump uh, being reelected, which is certainly uh, a possibility, not only when it comes to the climate, uh, but also when it comes to democracy. 
Well, I saw the other day where he pledged to be a dictator on day one, and you kind of wonder uh, what it'll take for people to uh, believe him when he tells us uh, who he is. And, uh, you know, the, the solution to political uh, despair is political action. And for those in, in the Republican Party and the Democratic Party and independents who love American democracy and who want to preserve our capacity to govern ourselves uh, and solve our problems, now's the time uh, to get active. You know, there's a, there's a mental health crisis around the world, Jake, that we hear people talking about. I think that one of the main reasons for that uh, is that young people look uh, at the fact that we are not yet solving the climate crisis or dealing with some of these other challenges. Uh, and we hear this word thrown around, polycrisis. Well, solving the climate crisis is a poly solution. We know what to do. We have the means to do it. And we have to make sure uh, that we make the right political choices in our democracy to enable ourselves to make the right choices. Um, I also have to ask you, sir, because uh, you are a Harvard alum, uh, the, the president uh, of Harvard, Penn and MIT were before uh, Congress uh, this past week, and they were asked uh, whether or not it uh, explicitly calling for the genocide of Jews on their campus would constitute harassment. Uh, and they seem to struggle with that, although the presidents of Penn and Harvard uh, issued clarifying statements. Uh, and I was wondering what your reaction to it as somebody who has been uh, a strong supporter of the Jewish community, a strong supporter of Israel, and also, uh, as I noted, a, a proud Harvard alum. Well, I was shocked uh, by the tone deafness uh, of those comments, and I think they got bad legal <laughs> advice in putting together what they were going to say, and uh, they sure, they certainly do need to clarify that, and w we, we need to uh, respect one another in our country, and when statements uh, uh, of the kind that were they were asked about come out, we need to to stand against them and stand firm as Americans for for respect for all of the communities that make up America. E pluribus unum. We need to be one country. And, and lastly, obviously, you know, for eight years the Clinton Gore White House grappled with the issue of the Israeli-Palestinian cri crisis. Your former boss a few years ago said he killed himself to try to settle the issue once and for all. Uh, obviously, there was a deal on the table uh, when he had uh, the leaders of Israel and, uh, and the Palestinian uh, people um, in the United States trying to offer a deal. Given all that history, given the blood, sweat, and tears of, of the Clinton-Gore administration to try to bring peace to the region, what goes through your mind when you see the crisis unfolding as it is right now? Well, it, it's heartbreaking, uh, and beginning, of course, uh, with the uh, Hitler-level atrocities of October 7th, uh, just uh, unbelievably uh, horrific. Uh, and, and, of course, uh, uh, as our Secretary of Defense has uh, uh, said, uh, it's important not to make the same kind of mistakes that our country made after 9-11 that ended up making things worse. So... Uh, the, the suffering uh, of civilians uh, in Gaza has to be attended to. Uh, and, and the response to the atrocities of October 7th uh, ha are, are what Israel has a right to, to pursue, but it needs to do it in a way that doesn't end up making the situation worse. And I think there uh, probably are a majority uh, in, in Israel that agree with that. 
we have to go back to the two-state solution, Jake. Sometimes a solution appears to be so hard that people quit talking about it. Uh, and Hamas doesn't want a two-state solution. And some, even cabinet members of Netanyahu, don't want a, a two-state solution. But the majority understand that is where this needs to, that's where this needs to go in order to solve it for the long term. Vice President Al Gore, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time today, sir. Thank you, Jake. A new poll has Nikki Haley up double digits in a hypothetical matchup against Joe Biden. We'll dig into what's behind those numbers with my panel next. Under no circumstances, you are promising America tonight. You would never abuse power as retribution against anybody. Except for day one. He says, you're not going to be a dictator, are you? I said, no, 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 other than day one. He said uh, that I want to be a dictator. I didn't say that. I said I want to be a dictator for one day. And you know why I wanted to be a dictator? Because I want a wall. Welcome back to State of the Union. Donald Trump says he wants to be a dictator, but don't, don't worry, it will only be for, for one day. My panel uh, joins me now. Boy, Sean Hannity was really trying to help him he there. Was, he was like, <laughs> listen, this is, I'm giving it to you. I'm giving it to you. Just say, absolutely not. I, I mean, trying so hard to help. Yeah. Just giving it to him. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't, and he wouldn't it. take it. He, he couldn't do it. <laughs> he got too cute by half, I think. He wanted to make this point that I'm, you know, look, let's first stipulate Donald Trump doesn't believe in rules or laws or norms or institutions. He thinks they're for suckers. And part of his message is, I'm not going to let that stuff get in the way. We're just going to drill. We're going we're to build that wall and take care of the border. And he thought this was a cute way to say that. But he intermingled it with this word. And by the way, he's given us enough evidence that he does have these autocratic right. designs that everybody lit their hair on fire. So that's, that's the thing, because it's not really about the wall and it's not really about energy. It's about the other things he said uh, that suggest autocratic impulses. Take a listen. I will appoint a real special prosecutor to go after the most corrupt president in the history of the United States of America, Joe Biden. If I happen to be president and I see somebody who's doing well and beating me very badly, I say, go down and indict them. And if you're president again, will you lock people up? The answer is you have no choice because they're doing it to us. And that's just a, that's just a little pastiche. Mm-hmm. It's a little sampling of it. And he's not going to have around him next time, should there be a next time, the John Kellys and the Bill Bars and the you know, Mark Espers. He's going to have around him a bunch of people who just say, yeah, that's a great idea. There are a lot of people who came out of that first administration who I do not think would be very interested in going back for a second time. And so I think you're right. You're going to see a very different cast in season two of Trump as president. And the real challenge is that for, and I see this on both sides a little bit, that people feel like their own side in politics has been losing, that they have been on the losing end and that it is the other side that doesn't care about rules, that is willing to break norms, that is willing to do what it takes to take power. And you find that Trump is the very potent vehicle for that entire way of thinking on the right. The idea that, I mean, he talks about Republicans being weak far more than he ever talks about Democrats being weak. This has been a key part of his message from day one. It has been core to his appeal to Republican voters. I think it's time for the Democratic Party to turn the election not in a referendum on Joe Biden, but to vividly point out what a Donald Trump presidency is going to mean. It's going to mean, by his own admission, a Muslim land on day one. 
It's going to mean that you have the politicization of the Justice Department to have prosecutions against people he calls vermin. And it's going to mean cuts for people who are struggling today. Cuts in education, cuts in housing assistance, cuts in possibly Social Security and Medicare with a debt commission. The way we win this campaign is to vividly describe what a Donald Trump presidency is going to mean. If he becomes the nominee, we should note, because with five weeks until the Iowa caucuses, a new Wall Street Journal poll shows President Biden ties with Ron DeSantis uh, in a hypothetical matchup. He trails Donald Trump by four points, but he would lose to Nikki Haley by a whopping 17 points. 17 points. That suggests a, a whole lot of Democrats and independents that look at the choice of Biden and Haley and think, oh, that's, that's a no-brainer. And yet, Kirsten Sulte-Sanderson... She's still not likely to get the nomination. So I think Nikki Haley would be an enormously formidable force in November of 2024. I would not put money on her winning the presidential election by 17 points or whatever the, the, right, of course not, the poll found. That, that's probably an exaggeration. That's never happened. But she is, I think there is plenty of data that shows it's very clear she would be the most electable of the options Republicans have in front of them. The problem she's facing is that, to sort of use a Star Wars analogy, she's got to do like the, the trench run on the Death Star. Like everything has to go right in order for her to first of all win in New Hampshire, and then you've got the empire is going to strike back in South Carolina. I mean, the gauntlet that she has to run to be the nominee is enormous. This is the dilemma for the Republican Party, and we saw it last year in the midterm elections. The things that it takes to get nominated in that party make you a, a bad general election candidate. The things that would make you a good general election candidate make you objectionable to the party's base. It's hard to be a center-right Republican and do well in this process. Congressman, you agree? I think she's threading that very well, though. I think she's actually doing a better job than anybody else, threading that line, making sure she shows her conservative um, policies, and also she can be mainstream. But she's not. I mean, Donald Trump is still far and away the leader for the nomination. It's not even close. It's not a, it's not even close, but I do think that there is a pathway for Nikki Haley. I do. I think that even Republicans, I mean, think about this. Even Republicans are are saying, I, I've had enough. I can't do another. I can't do another four years of this. Not, so not enough of them is going to be abortion, as David pointed out, and as U.S. J.D. Vance. I mean, they are on the extreme right. You've got Donald Trump who appointed three justices, who took away women's rights, and you have so much of the party saying no exceptions for rape or in Texas where the health of the mother is at stake. Nikki Haley at least is saying some exceptions, and that's probably why she's not going to win. It's Donald Trump who's upholding the extreme abortion policies, by the way, that even Ronald Reagan and George Bush didn't have, and I think that's another reason the Democrats will win. You know, this point, I I think Haley, first of all, she's a tremendously skilled politician, and I I think she's done very well in this process. But the nature of this process is the better you do, the better you have to do, and the more mm-hmm. scrutiny you get. Mm-hmm. And so kind of trying to walk the line and please everyone in that party becomes harder and harder, and you get challenged. Right now, DeSantis is running, or one of the PACs supporting him, a you know kind of Nikki Haley conflicting statement ad, like a flip-flop ad, tricky Nikki, they call her. I, this is a vulnerability. So we'll see. If she actually becomes competitive with Trump, my guess is he's not going to uh, wave her through. <laughs> right now. Well, she's well, got, she's I, got I a lot disagree of with one, The Koch uh, brothers came out and supported Yeah. I, I want to disagree with one thing, though. I think that the fact that she takes a more sort of nuanced stance on abortion is not the reason or even a really contributing factor to why she's not 
first in this primary, the reality is that Republican voters just still kind of like Donald Trump and that a lot of these candidates running against him have not tried to lay a glove on him right. too much up until Including this point. Her. There hasn't been a sustained assault on Donald Trump. No, he's been able been to ride above it her. all. And so that's a big, yes, in the last debate, she certainly had all the cannons turned toward her. So I think that's part of it too. Republican voters, they may like Nikki Haley. They may even agree with her position, that more nuanced view. But they think Donald Trump did a good job in his first term. And, and until Republican voters believe otherwise, that's what's going to make it so hard to overcome him. In and the and what, about, what about the threat to democracy that so many people, including Liz Cheney, feel he poses? So, I, I mean, I think of somebody like a Liz Cheney, you know, she's sort of made noises about is she going to run for president. A lot of folks that really have those concerns have left the party. Um, they could be open to voting for a third party candidate. But frankly, I think that hurts Joe Biden mm -hmm. more than it would hurt mm -hmm. Donald Trump in a general election. Yeah. All right. Thanks one and all for being the here. The other really thing I wanted to say, yeah. you know, Ro Khanna is right about um, going and saying, this is what's going to help the Democrat Party is by pointing out what a Trump presidency looks like. If, if but, they but, successfully make that argument. Yeah, but there's also an argument that's actually working against Joe Biden in terms of what he's doing today and how it's hurting yes. the American people. To, they just, they're just going to keep going. I mean, it's not, we're still suffering from inflation. We're tune in, this, from tune in this week to two CNN town halls with Republican presidential candidates in Iowa. On Tuesday, I'm going to host Governor Ron DeSantis at 9 p.m. On Wednesday, Abby Phillip will host a town hall with Vivek Ramaswamy, we hope you will join us. Thank you for spending your Sunday morning with us. Fareed Zakaria GPS starts next. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.